All right, please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Ecclesiastes 11. Thank you for uh, lifting your hearts up with me in prayer. Ecclesiastes 11, we'll be looking at Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through chapter 12, verse 7. We are two weeks away from finishing Ecclesiastes. We've been in it for uh, several months now, uh, really since the spring, and we're almost finished. After which time, let me tell you a little bit about what's going to happen. Uh, I had mentioned we're going to be starting an end time series soon, that being based upon what we're doing in the evening service in Luke. Uh, that What we are going to do is after this, we're going to have um, a couple of weeks of teaching on a few other topics that are coming up in Luke right now. First being offenses, then being forgiveness. Then we'll have thanks uh, or we'll have Thanksgiving. Uh, that's going to be coming up here soon uh, as well. And then Christmas. And then after Christmas, we'll dig into that end time series, which will take us most likely from Christmas all the way to Resurrection Sunday. And so we'll be in that in the morning service for some time. That's what you have to look forward to. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, there's a, it's, it's a good time for such a series uh, with events as they are right now, with things happening in culture and in government as they are right now. One more thing before we dig in. Uh, I want to make a correction from last week. Uh, a couple of the mathematicians in our midst ha- re- re- reminded me, informed me, as I talked about the number of hours that that young man had been playing video games. Um, I had said 9,000 hours, working 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, uh, two and a half years. It's actually four and a half years, not two and a half years. Um, so I don't know if I was, I mean, it had been a little while I was doing that off of memory for my calculations. I don't know if, if, uh, um, yeah, I don't know where, what happened there, but it was, it's four and a half years, which makes the illustration even more profound if you think about it. Um, but I wanted to make that correction as well. It's already been corrected on the video and audio, so you won't have to, uh, if, you, if you've listened to those sermons online, that, that correction has been made already. But uh, for those of you that were in the service, wanted to uh, make that correction. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse eleven, verse seven. Excuse me, to twelve, verse seven. The title of the message to our youth. Last week we spoke about maturity, and so in, in one sense it was it was to the younger people in our midst, as it were, anyway, although certainly we can all benefit from it. We are coming to the end of the book, and as we come to the end of the book, and as we see Solomon's conclusions, we we need to understand that Solomon is writing here to young people. He's writing here to people who have not yet made the mistakes of following after all of the promises and the allures of the world, And so he's trying to cut them off at the past and say, look, I've done it. I've lived it. I've had money. I've had women. I've had stuff. I've had honor. I've done building projects. I've learned everything I can possibly learn. I've collected stuff. I've done everything and none of it is going to satisfy you, right? As we, as I've mentioned, as we get closer to the end, we're seeing him focus in again more and more on this particular subset of people that, that we would call our youth. Ecclesiastes is a book of lessons. It's a book of choices. It's a book of consequences. We know that the choices we make have consequences. We've learned that all throughout the book. This wisdom, therefore, is naturally most appropriately given to young people, hoping that through this wisdom, our young people will avoid the mistakes before you have to make them. Recognizing these mistakes in others and then changing your behavior so that you don't have to make the mistakes yourself. How much better is it when we can avoid mistakes by listening to wisdom and then getting ourselves on track, avoiding the problems before those problems end up costing us? Now, when I speak of young people today, I'm not only speaking of, say, the, the 0 to 18 range. We might most naturally, when we say youth, think of that. But really, as we think about the concepts that Solomon is presenting today, and as we then breach into our application, it's going to comprise not just, say, the 0 to 18 range, but even into the 20s, 30s, 40s, we might even add. And so, young people... And anyone in this room, if you want to count yourself, count yourself. It's good. Young people, this message is for you. It's an impassioned plea to use your time wisely. It's an impassioned plea to make these years of your life, years of strength, years of vitality, years of capacity count, not just for pleasure and enjoyment before the Lord. And the exhortation, as we'll see, is not just a suggestion, it's also a warning. 
Solomon next this week and next week is going to couch his exhortations in strong warnings that the judge of all the earth is watching you and that that should matter to us. You've got your Bibles. If you need a Bible, there are some on the back table to my right and your left, I believe. Look, at me, look with me in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 11. Ecclesiastes. Solomon writes here, Truly the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that cometh is vanity. As Solomon continues today, he first focuses upon the pleasures of this life. This has been a recurring theme throughout the book that the virtuous pleasures of this life are given as gifts by God for our enjoyment, right? That it is not wrong to enjoy life. It is not wrong to enjoy the pleasures that life can uh, afford. The eating and the drinking and the fellowship and the amusements and the entertainments and the relationships and the affections. Solomon says here that light is a wonderful thing. may not think so in the early morning, but light is a wonderful thing, isn't it? To behold the sun is pleasant. It's a blessing. To live life, to enjoy life, to have a life to live, these are truly wonderful things. As Solomon is saying this, I'd imagine kind of the feeling that I used to get, I grew up in Colorado, that I used to get when I'd climb one of those mountains. The, the advantage of Colorado, as opposed to some other places where you might climb mountains, is that you can see everything, right? There's not, not a lot of underbrush. So you climb to the top of a mountain, and you can see valleys, and you can see mountains, and you can see peaks. I remember hiking with my wife in the Appalachian Trail. We would hike the AT uh, when we were younger, and less childful and in that area. And at that time, uh, you, all you saw in front of you was just trees, right, and, and brush. And you're whacking through the brush sometimes. And then you get to a, what's called a bald. And when you get to a bald, then you can see out. And what do you see? Trees and trees and trees and trees and trees, right? And it's lush and it's beautiful and it has a beauty all its own. But I can imagine kind of that feeling that you might get when you stand up in the mountain and you, you're, you're surveying and you see the beauty and you say, wow, it is a beautiful world. It's that feeling you get when you're up in Canada fishing and you're having shore lunch, right? And you're looking around and it's beautiful. And you just see nothing but trees and water and nobody else but you and the guys that you're with or whatever. And it's beautiful and you say, this is beautiful. That idea, Solomon says light is a pleasant thing. This world is a, it's, it's a pleasant world. There's a lot of beauty in it. But remember that even if a man lives many, many years, even if every one of those years were joyful, even if things went well consistently and you had no regrets and it was comfortable and it was healthy and all was well, remember it is incumbent upon every one of us to remember that those days will end. That after our days on this earth comes death, and those days of death will be many more than the days of our life. And then Solomon says, in reference to those days of death, all that cometh is vanity. The idea behind this is that those days of darkness, in those days of darkness, there's no more ability to enjoy the things of light. Now, we know, and Solomon teaches this all throughout, there's an afterlife, there is a life to come, and if you're a born-again believer in this room, if you've accepted the simple gospel by grace through faith that Jesus died on the cross for you, he was buried, he rose again, that he is who he says he is, that he did what he said he, he's done, and that he's coming back for us. If we accept this simple gospel so that Christ makes us new in him and, and, and gives us eternal life, we know that there's a wonderful world that we're going to. We know that. Solomon is not trying to say there's nothing after death. And in fact, we'll see next week and even some this week that the very essence of Solomon's message is there is something after death, so live for it. But he says in these days of joy, when, 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 when we can feel the sun beat on our faces, when, when the pleasant things of this life are about us, he says in these days, let us always remember that those days will end and let us keep them in perspective. Not in a fundamentally morbid way. Not that you wake up in the morning, you feel the sun and say, I'm going to die one day. It's not like that, right? It's not like that. The idea though is that as you're enjoying what life has to offer, you're keeping it in perspective to say, remember, this life matters for more than just today. 
enjoy the sun, enjoy the things for what they are today, but remember that there's a life after this as well. And Solomon tells us why in verse 9, a very important verse. He says this, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes, but know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Solomon tells young people, rejoice in your youth. Young people, and remember, I'm not just talking to 1 through 18 here. While you're strong, while you're vital, while you have the ability, rejoice in all of that. It's often remarked that the days of one's youth can be the best days of your life. You have energy, you have passion, you have desire. Young people are idealistic. They're not encumbered by years of cynicism that have eaten away their passion. And more than that, Youth hit a certain age where where they become far more independent in mind and in will. They begin to see their freedom of choice. They begin to detach their opinions, detach their will from others. They begin to think for themselves and want to make their own decisions. And Solomon acknowledges those are the years where life is best from a life perspective. The years where you pursue the enjoyments of your heart to cheer you, where you follow your passions, where you allow your, 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 your desires to direct your direction. So he says, walk in the way of your heart. Walk in the sight of your eyes. Live life. Because God has designed life to be lived. God has designed life to be enjoyed and life is most fully and naturally realized, if we think about it, in youth and in vigor and in passion and in strength and in idealism. It's natural and expected that the years of youth will be the years for these things. But young people, there must be a very deliberate line drawn in this exhortation This exhortation of Solomon's and of the scriptures through the Holy Spirit's inspiration is not a blank slate. And it's not a blank slate because of that last phrase, but know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. The years of youth, if we could say it this way, from about 15 to 35, are years of passion and energy and idealism. Certainly there's a plus or minus there, right? They are also the years where the mind of the young people, these, the minds of these people are farthest from the realities of eternity in their mind. They are years where the human heart is least likely and least willing to obey sound wisdom. Because we consider, as we considered a few weeks ago, that wisdom is humble and it's quiet in its presentation. And there's not a lot about youth that's humble or quiet, is there? And so there's no natural propensity. I was listening to a pastor preach the other day, a pastor that I respect. I listen to him regularly. And he said, as I get older, he said, I have come to appreciate simplicity. And he was using the, the example of a clock radio uh, uh, type idea, which dates him already, right? But the, the idea being he used to like the radios that had all of the equalizers and the buttons and whatnot. But as he gets older, he just wants one button. He wants the on button. And then he can do a volume button. He, he, he's begun to appreciate simplicity. And you know, when we're young and we can keep up with all of that stuff, the complicated and, and, and all of that, there's a time for that. But, but at the same time, Solomon says, there are certain things that are humble. There are certain things that are quiet that if you can get a hold of them as a youth, you'll save yourself a lot of trouble. In the years of one's youth, the new, the exciting, the progressive are what allures. Young people want to move forward because they're idealistic. They haven't experienced the battles of the past, the lessons of the past, so they're less prone to simply learn by example. We're seeing this today, right? We're seeing how in our society, the, the battle over capitalism versus communism that, that one thought was won in the 80s has come around again. Why? Because this next generation of influencers was not a part of that battle. They were not a part of that battle. So they don't see what the generation previously sees in that battle. Young people want to live. They want to experience this thing called life. They want to test their limits and their boundaries and they're strong and they're capable and they can do that. In these years, young people transition to making their own choices providing for themselves, guiding their own education, guiding their own provision. These years are empowering. They're exciting. 
Your time is your own. Your money is your own. Your choices are your own. And this leads to a predisposition in young people. This leads to a place where young people tend to pursue not only virtuous pleasures, not only all the virtuous blessings that this life has to offer, but then to also pursue the pleasures of sin. And in the mind of one who is living for today, today really doesn't matter. In the mind of one who is strong, who hasn't run up against the physical limitations that come through time and through consequence or imposed limitations, those limitations that, that wisdom would seek to place on a person where they say, don't go here, don't do this, avoid that corner, avoid those places, those seem like limitations that we should not have to bear when we're young. Young people are tempted to resent rules, to resent exhortations unto obedience, to resent the, the trends, to resent the lessons that the past generations have given to us. And sometimes simply because we don't want to be told what to do. There's a natural rebellious streak in young people a deep-seated independence and even a degree of irreverence that creeps into us naturally in those years of youth. This is to be expected. But church, just because it's expected doesn't make it right. Just because it's expected does not make it right. So Solomon says this. He says, pursue your passions. Love life. Take full advantage of the vigor and strength of your days. But draw a line, young people, that you refuse to cross. Draw a line, the line the Bible gives you. And take the Word of God and say, I am going to love life, but I am going to stop where life asks me to go beyond this book. Where life asks me to get beyond what this book, the line this book draws that says, don't cross that line. Don't go there. Because there is the place of death. There is the place of danger. There is the place of sorrow. There is the place of regret. Don't forget that God is still on the throne, young people. Just because you're young and you're passionate and you're idealistic and you're not thinking about death and death is not, not on your radar and, and you're, you, you know, the, the old adage, you, you know, young people think they're going to live forever. Ever. Just because that's the way you think and it's okay to think that way, just don't forget that there's still a God on the throne. Don't lose sight of the fact that though you are making your own decisions, though you have discretion with your time, though you have discretion with your money, though you are idealistic and though you are passionate, that you still function under the design of the God of heaven. And that design is not going to bend to your will. That design is not going to wrap itself around you. That God will still bring your works and your decisions into judgment. Don't lose sight of the line where enjoyment becomes sin. In the life of those under 18, in our society, young people often get a pass. The excuse is, well, they're young. And to some degree, this is appropriate. We're less likely to fault a five-year-old for breaking a dish than a 15-year-old for breaking a dish, right? Because they're younger and, and uh, coordination and experience and all of these things. Even society, we have juvenile centers to keep young people when they do wrong outside of the, the adult system for their own protection uh, as, and for several other reasons. But here's the thing. While as young people, your decisions in society, maybe in the family, are lesser as you're younger, spiritual consequences can remain the same. The decisions you make as young people, spiritually speaking, can haunt you into adulthood, can haunt you through your life. The consequences might linger. There are many things when you're younger that you can get away with in this life. Oftentimes, bad money management can be overcome. Oftentimes, um, poor decision making as far as uh, um, your day in and day out, th those things can be overcome. But there are some spiritual things when you make bad moral decisions in your 20s and 30s that can have lasting spiritual consequences. So Solomon says, live life while it exists to be lived, but never be diverted from the fact that you're living it under a righteous judge. Never lose sight of the line that separates vice from virtue. 
He continues in verse 10. He says, Therefore remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. So he says two things. He says, first, remove sorrow from your heart. Enjoy your days. Second, he says, put away sin, evil from your flesh. Love days without doing wrong. Find the balance. Seek righteousness, virtue, godliness in your days. And then Solomon says, why? Because the days of childhood and youth don't last long, do they? Use the opportunities that come with youth properly because once the energy and the passion and the idealism of youth is gone, it's gone. Often in life, one looks back at those who are younger with their energy and passion and you you begin to wonder at the design of God, right? Why is it that God has given the people that have no clue about how to use passion, energy, and idealism to, to them, right? Why is it that all of the energy is given to, 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 to young people, and then as you get older, and you get stable, and you get your head screwed on straight, and now you know what you want to do with your life, and now you know what, where to direct your energies, and now you've been matured, and all of these things, now you don't have the energy to do everything that you could have done if only you'd have had your head screw, screwed on straight 20 years ago, right? We, and, and we might wonder at the... the uh, the design of God and say things such as energy is wasted on the young. Strength is wasted on the young. And you get old. And now you don't have that energy anymore. You don't have the stamina anymore. And if I've depressed you a little bit, I'm sorry. Uh, that's not what I want to do this morning. Uh, nor is it what Solomon wants to do implicitly. He's not here to discourage those who are beyond the days of youth. He's here to exhort those who are still in their youth. He wants to shake those who are still in their youth into a place of vigor and passion, not just for anything, but for the Lord. It does not need to happen that you won't get your head screwed on straight until you're past the days of of your vigor and your energy. It does not have to happen that your young days are days of things that you'll regret and you end up uh, living uh, a different way as you're older and you're living with those regrets. It doesn't have to happen. Young people, what could God do with you if you gave yourself to him today? How could God use your energy, your zeal, your passion in this church? How could God use your strength of mind and body in this community? What could God do with us if we gave him of the strength of our youth? So what's the point? Solomon says as we get into chapter 12, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, verses 1 and 2. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them, while the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after rain. Solomon says, here's the point. Remember your creator now. While you're young, remember you have a creator. Remember there's a judge. Remember the God who loves you. Most of our young people here are, have been born again. We've still got our youngest among us who, who have not accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. But the vast majority of our youth here have been born again. And if you've been born again, then you have the same Holy Spirit in you which pastor has in him. You have the same Holy Spirit in you that, 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 that spurred revivals. The same Holy Spirit in you that led missionaries to see entire cities, towns, countries turned upside down for Christ. That Holy Spirit is in you. He's there. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Don't be so caught up in, what am I going to eat next? Don't be so caught up in, what do I get to do with my free time? That you lose the fact that your creator is there. He loves you and he wants to use you. That's the very essence of our model of church, isn't it? The very essence of our model, we keep the young people here because you're a part of this church. You can serve in this church. You can serve in the capacities that others can serve in this church. You can make a difference for this church. You can go out into that community and you can win folks to Christ in the same way I can. You can share the gospel in the same way I can. You can take a tract and give it to a person in the same way I can. The same spirit that is within the adults in this room are within, is within you. Remember thy creator in the days of thy youth while you're young, while you're strong, while you have vigor. Now the remaining verses in Ecclesiastes that we're covering today, verses 2, well really 1 through 7 of chapter 12, will be a description of why these years of youth are so important. 
It's a description of what happens as you get old. Once again, I'm not trying to discourage those who are past their prime in our assembly this morning. But Solomon is going to describe the state of the elderly. And this is how he does it beginning in verse 1. He calls, he, he calls the days as you get older, evil days. He describes days at the end of one's life as days that have no pleasure in them. While the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened nor the clouds return after rain. It's a description of an elderly person who simply finds no pleasure left in life. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody that's in this state where uh, there's certainly many elderly, particularly today, that are still uh, vigorous and have energy and have capacity and whatnot. Medicine has done amazing things, especially for the elderly and, and, and the medical field and with, with, with the capacities that they have to, to fix things. But if you've ever met somebody who is just now living and there's really not much left and they're, they're, they're alive physically, but they're so impaired that they can't really do anything... And if, I mean, if you've ever gone to nursing homes, you've seen a lot of these. Their family doesn't really visit them and they just kind of sit in their room all day because they can't do much else. And they don't have anyone to, to, to really spend time with them. That's the idea. Those are the evil days. And I know it sounds morbid, but, but Solomon's describing something unto a purpose here. And it's a description, not an expectation. He continues in verse 3. He says, In the days when the keeper of the house shall tremble... And the strong men shall bow themselves, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look out the, of the windows be darkened. He's describing four physical attributes here. First, he says the keepers of the house shake. That's the hand shaking. Then he says men of strength bow down. Men who used to be strong aren't quite strong anymore, and they're shaking, and they're bowed. Their spines are bowed. And then he says the grinders cease. Their teeth have worn down to where they can't chew much anymore, Right? And then he says their eyes are, the, the light is darkened. They can't see very well. Their eyes are dim. Now again, the mo marvels of modern medicine have helped here, right? We've got dentures and we've got surgeries for the eyes and, and glasses and such. And a lot of this has been mitigated. And yet this is the description, right? He goes on in verse four. He says, the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low and he shall rise up again at the voice of the bird and all daughters of music shall be brought low. The doors shall be shut in the street when the sounding of the grinding is low. There's those teeth again. The sound of the grinding is low. And at that point, you had nothing, you had no teeth left, right? And if you've ever uh, interacted with someone who doesn't have teeth and who doesn't have dentures in, uh, they can't keep food in their mouths very easily because their teeth are normally what keeps the food from falling out. So if you don't have teeth, you have to shut your mouth really quickly in order to keep the food in. This is the idea that he's describing here. And then he says, you shall rise with the voice of the bird and the daughters of the music shall be brought low. Um, rising with the voice of the bird. You wake up really easily and then you can't get back to sleep. So you don't get much sleep and you only get a few hours of sleep in the night. And, and as you get older, you, you don't sleep much anymore. And then he says, the music shall be brought low. You can't hear as well anymore. This is the description here. He says, um, Also, when they shall be afraid of, what, of that which is high, fear shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden, and desire shall fail, because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about in the streets. So he talks here about being afraid of what is high because your balance is not as good. If you've met an elderly person who has fallen and they've gotten hurt and they've needed surgery and it's easier to fall and when you do fall, there's dangers there, right? And sometimes there's never full recovery. He talks about the almond tree that shall flourish. A distinction of a blossoming, a blossoming almond tree is that all of its blossoms, when an almond tree blossoms, are a beautiful white. So when he talks about the almond tree flourishing, he's talking about a gray head of hair. A gray head of hair. And that's those of you that are lucky enough to have hair to turn gray. I'm not one of those. A gray head of hair, right? The hair is turning gray. It's an element of being old. He then says the grasshopper shall be a burden. Even light burdens are difficult. Motivation becomes low. Distances become far distances. And then as a man's influence wanes, uh, there's a point in one's life perhaps, and God forbid it should ever happen, but it happens, where it's as if the mourners are already standing at the door just waiting to sing of your funeral, right? It's like you're nothing more than a burden now. And people are just waiting for you to die. That's Solomon's description of the evil days. 
Solomon says, while you still have strength, give it to God because there's coming a day where you may not have a lot of strength anymore. And that doesn't mean you're useless to the church, folks. We're going to look at Titus chapter 2 in a moment and find that it's, you, you still have an incredibly important use if our youth will listen to them. You still have a use and you still have a very important place in the church, but it's just not the place where you can go out with the vigor and the passion and do what you used to do. That's for our young people. That's for this age. That's for the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. That's for that time when there's still vigor and passion and ability. So he describes the end here in verses 6 and 7. Or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel be broken at the cistern, then shall dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to the God who gave it. This is the description of death. Describing it variously as the silver cord being loosed, as the golden bowl being broken, as the pitcher being broken at the fountain, as the wheel being broken at the cistern, all of which meaning life is ending. Dust returns to dust. The body goes to the grave and the spirit returns to God. And the question is, what is the point? Why, why think about all this morbid stuff this morning? Because of our premise. Folks, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. Remember your creator now while you're still strong, while you have the ability. Let's get to work. Let's tell people about Christ. Let's see people saved. Let's be a blessing to others. Let's fellowship with one another. Let's exhort one another to love and good works while the day is still at hand. Because those days don't last forever. So let's ask a question. What does a godly young person look like? Now again, I'm speaking somewhat generally. I'm not just talking about 1 through 18. I'm talking about 20s, 30s, 40s. At that point, we don't always consider ourselves young, but what does a, a person with vigor, really what we'll be describing here is the people who are still in that season of life where you are active, where you're working, where you have kids in the house, where you're raising them. That's kind of the umbrella here. What does it mean to be a godly young person? What does it look like when God is in control, when you still have the prime of your life and strength and ambition? And for this, we're going to consider Titus chapter 2. I'll invite you to turn there if you have your Bibles. It will be on the screen as well. Titus chapter 2. Paul is instructing Titus on sound doctrine among believers. He says, this is what sound doctrine looks like. You want to know what sound doctrine looks like? It's found in Titus 2. We begin in verses 1 through 3. Titus, uh, Paul says this to Titus. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. And he begins with the older folks, the folks that are no longer in that season of life of youth and vigor. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith and charity and patience. Then the aged women likewise, that they be in behaviors becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much, much wine, teachers of good things. Sound doctrine should work out in older men and women in the church through a soundness of faith, through a stability, through a wisdom. They've learned the lessons, they've seen what's gone on, and they need to pass it down to the next generation now. That is the opportunity of the older folks in our midst. The opportunity of the older folks in our midst is to pass down wisdom to the next generation, to be an example of sound faith, to be an example of those who are temperate, under control, grave, serious, who take life seriously. They should be the anchor for the church to keep it grounded in love and in patience. When the younger guys want to bull ahead, make brash statements and idealistic choices, it's the older guys who get to grab them by the collar and say, hold on there, young buck, right? And pull them back and say, let's think about this a little bit before you go charging into battle. The older men should be there as a stabilizing force. The older women should be holy in behavior. Avoid gossip at all costs. Be temperate in all things. Under control. Showing this control. Not false accusing. And teachers of good things, particularly to the young women of the church. And now we get into the young people. I, bro I, I breezed through that a little bit quickly because the question is, what do godly young people look like? Now remember, not just 1 through 18, 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe 50s, that season of life 
What does it look like? That they, that would be the elderly women, may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young women here are presumed to be those who are either preparing for marriage or they are fully engaged in married life, raising children, etc. If you're engaged in married life or preparing for marriage, this is you. The older women in the church are called upon by God to teach the younger women these things. It's not my job implicitly to teach the women of the church these things. I teach the word of God, but the women are teaching the younger women. The older men are teaching the younger men. We are a community, a family, guiding one another into success. The role of the young women, to be sober, serious, to give up childishness and focus upon life properly. Girls in your teens, these are not years for you to waste. These are years for you to grow up so that you can readily, spiritually, and emotionally integrate into a family should the Lord call you to be married. They are years for you to become settled and stable so that you can enter marriage and give yourselves wholly to your family without drama, without baggage, without reservation, without confusion. And by the way, until you're in this emotional and spiritual state, you shouldn't get married. Those that get married to be rescued from a bad situation, those that get married thinking it will resolve unresolved issues um, simply by leaving them behind, it, it adds up to a tremendous layer of complication between you and your spouse that doesn't need to be there. Marriage doesn't make all the unresolved emotional and spiritual problems of the past go away. As a matter of fact, marriage often amplifies them, causing them to magnify, adds extra layers of complication to it, making it more difficult for you and your husband to function as God would call you to function in the home. Young women are to learn to love their husbands and to love their children. This concept stands at odds with everything that culture is teaching women to be and to do today. Culture is telling you that the essence of womanhood is independence. That the concept of the wife and mother is a concept of slavery of keeping women down and away from meeting their full potential. But the Bible says this could not be further from the truth. The role of woman as wife and mother is not just an honorable role in society. It is an essential role, not only to the family, but it is an essential role to society. To devote your life to raising the next generation is not a lesser form of living. In fact, it is a higher form of living. It is a higher ideal. It is important. It's the most important role in all of society. Indeed, it has been said before, and I fully agree with the concept that all other careers exist for the sole purpose of supporting the homemaker. That all careers exist for the sole purpose of allowing our mothers, if possible, to stay home and care for their children and raise them up as unto the Lord. This is what God commands for young women to do. If you've been deceived by a modern culture which is telling you that a life devo as a devo devoted wife and mother is somehow inferior, that it exists to hold women down, that it is the outworking of men's evil desire to make women an object of labor and of pleasure, you've been duped by a lie. And it is a lie that is directly contrary to what the Bible teaches. Therefore, we know where that lie comes from. It comes from the father of all lies. When you get it in your mind that being a wife and a mother is somehow inferior, you're really saying that God's design, as established in sound doctrine, is inferior as well. And this is simply not true. Every young woman in here ought to learn to cherish the value of a wife and mother and, if the Lord wills it, to take on that role with pleasure. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians that not every person is called to be married. And I'm not saying that that's an inferior existence. As a matter of fact, if we take Paul's words at their face value, it's a superior existence to devote oneself wholly to the Lord. Not to, not to your career, not to devote yourself wholly to your career, but to devote yourself wholly to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7 says singleness has its proper place, but that proper place is not to pursue your own ends. It's to dedicate yourself to the Lord. Other than that, Sound doctrine teaches us that the young woman has a place to be a keeper at home, good and obedient to her own husband, 
loving her husband, loving her children, and that this is not an inferior thing at all. So Paul teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 12 this. As he's teaching about the church, he says, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So Paul is teaching here about women not teaching in the church, and he gives reasons why. He mentions that the, uh, that the man was first formed, then the wife. That is an appeal to headship and God's design. And then he, uh, within God's design, he says, and Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived. What we know from those first days is that Eve was deceived into partaking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam was not deceived. He did it willingly as he yielded his headship and rebelled against the Lord. When Adam sinned, that's when all creation fell. It was not when Eve sinned. Adam bears the responsibility of that, not Eve, because Eve was underneath her husband's authority, and Adam was the one that had headship. So we're not saying here that it's all women's fault. As a matter of fact, it's all man's fault. Don't get that wrong. But there's a principle here that women are more empathetic, more prone to deception. They should not lead under God's design. Not the family, not the church. But that's not really where we're going with this. He uses all of this, and when it says to be silent in the church, that means not to usurp the authority of a man. We'll talk about that another day. I do have some messages online about that. But the idea being, notice at the end of verse 15, notwithstanding she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. The woman's role in society is redeemed by raising up the next generation to continue in faith, charity, and holiness with sobriety. That when a woman sees her children grow up and serve the Lord and influence the church and see souls saved, this is her reward and this is her joy. And you can say, nope, that's not enough for me. That's not enough for me just to be pleased to see my children grow up to love the Lord and do what's right. But here's the thing. This is the Bible giving you God's design. And if you think you can improve on it, you have every right to think that, but you're going to stand before the throne one day and find out that you missed out because we can't do better than God's design. We can't be happier than God's design. If this is the manual for life and we're, we're designed to operate by the manual, then if we operate by the manual, we'll be happiest. And what the Bible says is, The redemption for women, not salvation, that's not what we're talking about, but that her joy, her part in the church is to see the next generation that was her responsibility grow up to serve the Lord with all their hearts and souls and might. And then live in joy because of it. So what does a young woman who gives of the strength of her youth to God look like? It looks like a woman who is learning how to or living out the realities of loving her family, a single-minded devotion to her family, to her husband. Now, I don't desire to soften the teaching this morning, but I do remind us of something very important. We've already talked about those who are called to singlehood. I remind you as well that in a sin-sick world, biblical ideals do not always become perfect realities. We always aim for the biblical ideals, but there are times in life where women must work, right? For the needs of the family. The Bible is not saying women cannot work here. The Bible's not saying that. Ideally, for a woman to be able to devote all of her time for her family to her family is the place not only that is, that is ideal, but it's the place where the, as the Bible teaches it, she will find the most spiritual fulfillment. But there are situations in a fallen world that ask of us things that get away from all of the practical biblical ideals of life. Our loyalty is not necessarily that we always have to hit the ideal, though we want it. But rather, our loyalty ought to be to seeking the biblical philosophy. So if a woman must work to help her family survive for a time or whatever the case may be as a necessity in our society or by your situation, that's fine. Indeed, even the Proverbs 31 woman under the auspices of her husband made the home more rich, made the home more prosperous. But if a woman of the home is taking time away from her husband and children discretionarily, 
simply to sustain perhaps a more lavish lifestyle, simply to have more money and things, I would deeply encourage you to reassess your priorities because you're missing out on some of the biblical ideals for some of the things that this world has to offer. And if the Bible teaches us anything, it's that anytime we give up a biblical ideal for a material or, or a temporal um, advantage, it's just never worth it. And here's what we can always trust. If we do it God's way, we have God's blessing. So we continue. What does a godly young woman look like? She upholds the biblical loyalties to husband, children. She lives in purity. She's discreet, self-controlled, prudent, recognizing dangerous or sinful situations and avoiding them entirely for the sake of purity and testimony. She is chaste, free from moral impurity, dedicated to one man. Even if you don't yet know who that man is, you're his and you're his alone. Your responsibility to your husband begins well before you're married, just as your, your, your husband's responsibility to you begins well before he finds you. You are going to be one flesh with someone one day if the Lord should bless. We live in a society that in the name of societal equality and in the name of liberation of women has bound women to sexual slavery in a way that this country has never before seen. You say, wait a minute, I thought we were liberating women. Look at what's happening in Hollywood today. Do you call that liberation? Does, any, should, does anyone in here call that liberation? That women are shamed into silence in order to get jobs? Shamed into silence as men prey on them in order to get jobs? Does, does the nature of the, 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 the movie industry or the music industry, the essence of what it means to be a feminist today, really smack of anything other than sexual slavery of our women? Of turning them into pieces of meat for man's consumption? When have women been respected? Women have been respected in our society when biblical principles reign supreme. That's when women have been respected in our society. Treated as something other than just pieces of meat for consumption. Modern day feminism espouses that the best way to show your liberation is to give away your purity. Young ladies, this is a lie. So women are seen in society today as little more than pieces of meat for male consumption. And yet, some women think that by living out this sort of a lifestyle, they are living in their liberation. It's a lie. The desire of a man who is anything like a biblical man should be found in Proverbs 31, verse 30. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. And if the whole point of the way you act, the way you look, the way whatever, name it, is to gain men's attention to your outward appearance and actions instead of to your character, then you're missing the boat. Yet once again, women, if you have fallen prey to this idea that none of these externals matter, that indiscretion and flirtation, all of these things, this is just normal. You've been duped. And by your appearance and actions, the Bible says you're not reflecting sound doctrine. Continues, be keepers at home, making a proper functioning home. Good, simply to be a good woman, kind, considerate, loving, obedient to your own husbands. This is just the idea of headship, right? It doesn't mean that you're a slave to your husband. It doesn't mean that you're under his thumb to his every woman will. We, we've talked about that when we've talked about headship before, but that you regard proper headship. And in doing these things, young women, the Bible says you exemplify the word of God and the word of God will not be blasphemed through you. And may I just say this last thing to women? If you listen to society, then you believe that what the Bible just taught you is misery and enslavement, the patriarchy, whatever word you want to use that you are giving up your life. And to this I have two things to say. First, did not our Savior give up his life? Did not he yield his priorities to the Father's priorities at every turn? Secondly, as I've mentioned, if it's God's design, then it is where you will be happiest, bar none. 
And we just have to trust this. We have to believe this. There's no place of greater contentment than when you're doing life God's way. And Titus chapter 2 says this is sound doctrine. To the older women among us who have lived in this manner for years, those of you who have raised families and loved your husband and been successful and are now grown to see your children serving the Lord and loving the Lord, it's now your duty to pass that on to the young women of the church. And I don't just mean the teens. I mean the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. The women who right now are dealing with their children, who are struggling through their own submission issues, who are trying to decide what their priorities will be in this life. It's your turn to teach them. What about the young men? Verses 6 through 8. The young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. The young men likewise need to be taught to grow up. Fathers, don't allow your sons to live in perpetual immaturity. Teach that boy to grow up both spiritually and emotionally. They're going to have a family to lead for which to provide, not just physically, but they have to lead their family unto Christ. They're going to have to stand in the day of temptation. They're supposed to be the next generation of the church, the next leaders in the church. Young men need to be taught to be serious in mind and in action because this life matters. Young men need to show a pattern of good works. The emphasis of young women is on the family and the home, and so they are showing sound doctrine, right? That our young women are showing sound doctrine as they live out these ideals by raising their family, by loving their husband. The young men are supposed to be doing. They're supposed to go out into the world and to speak sound doctrine and to defend the faith and to take care of their wives and to take care of their family and to protect those that are their own. Young men need to learn how to be out there doing, to be helping, to be thinking of others, to be serving, to be guiding, to be protecting. They need to learn a level of consistency in good works. Far from having years of immaturity where they can just go around doing whatever they want. Far from this idea that we can just have our years of fun. The years of our young men's lives where they're growing, where they're strong, should be the best years of service in their entire life for the Lord. And what are young men prone to do? Silly, immature, teasing, asserting dominance over others, breaking things, wasting time, everything that youth do today. We need to be growing up, young people. Teach your young men to look outside of themselves and serve others. Teach your young men how to work. Teach your young men what it is to sacrifice himself for the needs of another. Because there's coming a day where he's going to have to make sacrifices for his family, for his church, for the Lord. So that as these young men live out their teens and 20s and 30s and 40s, they're dedicated to good works, to winning souls to Christ, to helping the needy, to comforting the hurting, to taking their place in the church and in society for the glory of God. Which leads us to the next point, teaching young men sound doctrine. Biblical teaching grounded on the word of God teaching our young men how to avoid foolish and unlearned questions, to not get caught up in the simple stuff and in the small stuff and to stick to the message of the word of God, teaching them how to spot error and stay away from it and keep their families away from it, teaching them how to love God and, and God's word. We as a body are supposed to be working together. Young, uh, older men, if you're beyond that age, if, you, if, if you're past that point, th your job is to be the anchor for these young men and teach them how to become this, to grow up spiritually, emotionally, physically. Teach them gravity and sincerity. That's sound doctrine here, right? Gravity, sincerity. Teach them to be truthful. Teach them to be serious. Teach them to care about life. Teach them to care about their families. Teach them to pursue proper priorities. Teach them to love and forgive one another. Teach them to have a proper testimony among the unbelieving world, to speak sound words of, uh, of biblical clarity and truth. And the reason for all of this, as we see here in the text, is that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you, so that when people want to look at your young men and say that they're evil and they want to find a reason, they have nothing and they'll just be ashamed. They'll just be ashamed that they even called them evil. 
This is the idea behind Peter's exhortation in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. He would say this again in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. We need to teach our young men to act and speak in society in honesty and integrity to be the best that society has to offer, not to speak or act against their authorities, not to refuse to obey governments, not to refuse to obey their bosses, not to lie, to cheat, or to steal, not to get away with whatever he can, but to live in honesty so that when the world would seek to accuse them as believers of a wrongdoing, the only wrongdoings that they'll have to accuse them of are wrongdoings that they've, erected, that they've created in their own minds, are the wrongdoings of being a Christian. So there's several wrongdoings today that are inherent in Christianity, aren't there? There's the wrongdoing of child discipline. There's even the wrongdoing of having lots of children, right? These are evil things in our culture today. Sexual purity, that's a wrongdoing in today's culture, right? That, that, that's called repression in today's culture. Headship, our, our, our culture calls it misogyny. That's a wrongdoing in our culture, right? So that if a woman and a man follow Titus chapter 2, our culture sees us as evil and, and doing wrong. But if the only thing that they can pin on us, if the only thing that any man of reasonable mind can pin on us is that we have happy functioning families because our young women aren't scarred by years of sexual manipulation and abuse and the young men have integrity and contribute to society and love and provide for their families, then we're doing pretty good. And if that's all they have to pin on us, then any reasonable man will at some point look at that, wake up and say, I want that too. Give me that evil if that's evil. That's the idea. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. Serve the Lord today. Be busy preparing yourself to serve the Lord today for tomorrow. Are you living in preparation for the realities of Titus 2, young people? Are you living in these realities today, young women and young men? Is God priority number one while you're still strong and because and, and, and while you have vigor and while you have ideals and while you have passion because there's coming a day when that's going to end and today is your day. Consider men like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, who as young men, probably in their early teens when they started out, stood, against, stood, stood before the most powerful man in the world and glorified Christ. Or an Ezekiel, whose ministry began at age 30 and did mighty things for the Lord. Or a David, who in his youth liberated the nation from God's enemies. Or a Jesus, who ministered from age 30 to 33. What about a David Brainerd, an American missionary to the Native Americans who at age 22 sparked a revival at Yale University, which was so powerful that George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards commended the spiritual condition of the student body after, his, after the revival. He began Spirit of God through him, of course. What about a Jim Elliott who died at age 29 seeking to win an entire tribe of Indians in Ecuador to the Lord? What about a young Hudson Taylor who devoted himself to a lifetime of service at age 19 and spent the next 50 years of his life turning China upside down for Christ? What about a young John and Betty Stam who died at age 25 and 26 respectively during the communist overthrow of China as they served on the mission field? And the question becomes, young people, what are we doing today? What are we doing at age 15, 19, 20, 22, 25, 30? For the Lord, while we have strength, while we have vigor. Well, what are we doing? You know, if our children can name full rosters of sports teams but can't name the 66 books of the Bible in order, I'm a little worried. If our children can walk you in their minds through an entire level of a video game but can't walk you through the gospel of Jesus Christ... I'm a little worried. If our children can give you all the steps in order for math and for English and for all of this stuff, but they can't tell you basic doctrinal truths, I'm a little worried. And I think that we ought to be as a church.
if that's the case. Young people, if you have no love or passion for the things of God, you're missing out on the best things that life has to offer during the best time of your life. So let us close today by reiterating the exhortation of Solomon to young men in chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice, O young men, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh. For childhood and youth are vanity. The days will slip by. Never forget, young people, that there's a God in heaven, that he has a design, and that his design is not there to make you miserable. His design is not there to make you unhappy. His design is not to strip from you the joys of life. His design is to give you fullness of joy, to give you the best that life has to offer, and then to allow you to have the privilege of seeing that duplicated, not just in your family, but in all those that you can reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer.